And I guess that's how I define family. Mm. If I need you for real, for real, and you're not there, then you're probably not my family for real, for real. Hello there, and welcome to This Is My Family, a podcast about building a life with the people you love. I'm your host, Tyler Green, and I am so glad that you're here. I'm raising a baby with my husband in California. And as my family grows, I wanted to talk to fascinating people about how we make our families and how our families end up making us. In each episode, I talk to somebody who can inspire us to think about family in new, bigger, and more inclusive ways. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Christopher Hamblin. He is maybe better known as Latrice Royale's husband. Latrice is a drag queen beloved around the world who was a breakout star from the reality competition show RuPaul's Drag Race. Last season, we did a whole episode about Latrice, and that's how I ended up getting to know Christopher. He's a musician, but also Latrice's manager. So we emailed a lot and texted a lot, and it occurred to me after they both really enjoyed that episode that it would be really great to get the other half of that conversation which is Christopher. And so that's what we're here to do today. I felt a connection right away talking with Christopher, especially when we learned that we both have a history with the same microscopic town in the Tennessee mountains. My mom actually lived in Christopher's hometown for years. I know it doesn't sound like much, but... There's this magical feeling when you learn about a connection like that. It's an excitement that you can only really get when you love a place that nobody's heard of, that makes meeting someone who's been there feel like kismet. And despite our shared connection to this particular small town in Tennessee, it wasn't an easy place for Christopher to grow up. Church sparked Christopher's love of music as a kid, but it took a really long journey for him to find and help build a community that blended music, faith, and acceptance of his queerness. It was his relationship with his grandmother that was the major centering force in Christopher's life as a closeted kid in Tennessee. My grandma Hazel was a matriarch of our family, and she was a very, very special soul. I think a lot of gay boys have real special connections with their grandmothers. She was sort of a little bit my protector within the family. My situation was maybe a little unique and kind of not in the South at the same time. My parents had married very young at 18 years old, and they had me at 20. Fast forward a couple of years, and my mom and dad don't work out. So I don't really have any memories of living with my mom and dad as a unit, really. I think from the time I was two and a half years old or so, my mom and I moved back in with her family. So at that time, that was my grandmother and grandfather and my mom's two brothers. There was a lot of us cousins, and every Christmas we would try to have a family reunion that my grandmother and her siblings would orchestrate and figure out who's going to bring the ham and who's going to bring the mm-hmm. stuffing and who's going to bring the egg salad. And, yeah. and my mom became what I refer to as part of like the Reba McIntyre generation <laughs> yes, of <fancy>. feminism. <laughs> Reba really did become a symbol for single mothers. My mom felt very, very obligated to go back into the workforce and back to school to educate herself to be able to have 
some way to provide for me. But that meant that most of my childhood was really spent with my grandmother because my mom was out in the workforce and my dad was not always consistent with child support or much else. (laughs) And so my grandmother was definitely like there in a certain way, having the mother, me and my mother. Yeah. There was a lot of judgment on the fact that there was a divorce in the family, Mm. in the community. I know that my mom felt very judged. And so my grandmother really had to be supportive and keep her head held high during that time to keep the family going and to keep me feeling loved there was definitely an expectation that I was gonna like grow up to be a basketball star and an athlete and you know follow that path so when I started like talking about Judy Garland and Bette Midler and Sandy Patty they were like um (laughs) don't know what to do don't know what to do and um you know I think that I was very different than anybody in my family We grew up raising tobacco, and I was always so allergic to everything, and they thought that I was, like, making excuses and just didn't want to participate in the farm work or being lazy or whatever. And my grandfather would always tease me, say, there ain't no girls around here to see you getting dirty. Quit going to wash your hands. Wash your hands. (laughs) Wash. I like the correction Uh, there. That was good. Yeah, yeah. He said wash. He would not have said wash. Um, (laughs) You know, they thought it was superficial or whatever, but I never liked being dirty. I didn't mind farming. And now uh, around the house, I love landscaping and I'm always out in nature. I'm still a country boy. I really believe I grew up in one of the most magical places in the world. The hollers and creeks and the mountains and the seasons. That being said, it is also, I hate to use it, but the word is backwards in a lot of ways. There are certain sets of beliefs culturally and spiritually that I was not a part of, really. I grew up very, very Baptist at Pump Springs Baptist Church. There was a spring and there was a pump, and so that's what they called the church in the holler. Pump Springs Baptist Church. I was very into it, and I loved the music. It's where I started making music. It was amazing in its way, but the people uh, eventually I felt very betrayed by because the love that I was shown as a child as I grew up and became more and more out. (laughs) It seems like that love has been withdrawn in a lot of ways. And that feels very hurtful to me. The youth minister at the church that I grew up in actually had deemed me unfit to aid in worship. And there came a point where I was no longer allowed to play the piano at my church because of my, quote, struggle with homosexuality. Mm. And I had felt very betrayed by him because he was my confidant and he was my minister and he was the person I was confiding in trying to figure my life out when I was very, like, suicidally in the closet. You know what I mean? I was really, like, not wanting to be gay. So even though I remember the geography of my childhood and the sense of community that was there very, very fondly. I also, like, have grown up to have to live somewhere else. When I graduated high school in 1999, the very next week, I packed my car and started summer school at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And um, (laughs) I didn't expect for this to be the thing that made me emotional, but I can still remember my grandmother just hugging me and crying her eyes out. Mm. Just just so... um, devastated to see me going but knowing I just there was this understanding between us of why I had to go she just knew that I was different and special and that I needed 
to get out of my situation. And um, so I went to college. And then as soon as I got there, I found out I wasn't quite ready for college. <laughs> like on an academic level, I was okay. But on a musical level, which is what I was studying, I wasn't as prepared as I thought I would be. And in the midst of trying to figure out what to do about that, my mother's brother was suddenly killed in a car accident. And that sort of interrupted the entire like family trajectory. Mm -hmm. And my mom had reached out to my dad that day when she had found out that her brother was dead and asked my dad to come and get me in Knoxville, which is about an hour and a half drive, to tell me in person yeah. because they didn't want to tell me over the phone. Right. But he did come and do that, and he was like kind of like... You know, using it really as an endeavor at being a stand-up guy and being a present father, which he hadn't always been. And after that situation, he lost his sobriety and had to go to rehab and basically had said to me that the stress of explaining, the, of being my father... <laughs> had cost him his sobriety and that was why he was there even though I had experienced like sadness and guilt and some level of insecurity and depression mm -hmm. up until that point my freshman year of college really threw me off course mentally I started not doing as well at school I couldn't really focus I was missing classes I was discovering the nightlife. Mm. I was discovering drag. I was finding opportunities where I could perform and make money without a college degree. So Christopher quit college. He moved to New York City to pursue musical theater and got exposed to all sorts of new things. One community in particular was a really big deal for Christopher, a group called the Radical Fairies, F-A-E-R-I-E-S. Chris describes them as kind of like the last of the living gay hippies. And he learned a lot about community building from them, how to create an environment where people who aren't alike in every way can really come together and find common ground. And a few years after that, Chris returned to Knoxville, and he used those lessons to find his people there. For one thing, he found a more accepting church. My grandmother taught me to believe in a God that was way bigger than King James. Mm. She didn't have the language or education to articulate that to me. She showed me the God of her understanding and her behavior and how she treated me and in the way that she loved. Yeah. And I try to emulate that mm. in everything that I do in my life. There is a Christ-likeness that I still aspire to, even though like I'm a filthy pervert and homosexual and all those other things too. <laughs> I feel that I have been able to grow into an understanding of God that has more manifestations than just the ones that I was taught about at Pump Springs Baptist Church. Yeah. And when I found the Tennessee Valley Unitarian Universalist Church, say that five times fast. I will not. <laughs> uh, right? I've tried it. It's not very fast, but I can do it. I felt like they were the closest community that I found in Knoxville to the Radical Fairies in that at a given service in a sanctuary in Knoxville, you could be sitting between a Jew and a Buddhist and an agnostic and a vegetarian and a homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> the challenge then became, how do we sit together? What do we agree on and how can we 
come together for the betterment of our society and our planet and each other. And the church that I worshipped at became the church that I volunteered and worked at a lot. But I got a job at the Catholic Church down the street. I've played for almost every (laughs) denomination. I played for the Catholics, the Christian scientists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians. I did play for the Catholics, and I was at work there the day that my church got shot at. Mm -hmm. We did three Masses a weekend, so I had just played the prelude and got things going, and I went downstairs because I'd already heard the sermon twice. It was on this day, July 27, 2008, when there was a shooting at Chris's new church. Two people were killed. Six others were wounded. Police who interviewed the shooter said that he was, quote, motivated by hatred of Democrats, liberals, African-Americans, and homosexuals, end quote. Chris's community was shattered by this tragedy. Some of the people were letting me know that the church where I worshipped, that somebody had been killed or it was just loose ends of information coming through. Mm -hmm. The pastor of the church, Reverend Chris Bice, when that happened, it really created this kind of Columbine atmosphere around him. He was now thrust in the media being a spokesperson for an entire denomination. They kept trying to pin him to say that he thought that the man that shot at the church was going to hell. And all he would say was that he believed that that man must have been living in hell already. Mm. And it was just the most compassionate thing I'd ever heard another person say. That even when you come to me with your violence, I still wish you better than you could give me. Mm. And I felt spoken for and seen. And it was very, very inspiring to be a part of the movement that happened around The church at that time, we found a lot of allies, and that really led to the formation of the Knoxville Gay Men's Chorus. Like, it came out of a birth of the trauma that the community experienced together. All of that informs my faith. I believe that every person has worth and that every person should be treated with dignity, and I'm not in charge of the rest. You've mentioned the Gay Men's Chorus, the Knoxville chapter, and I want to give you an opportunity to tell that story. Well, there wasn't a Gay Men's Chorus in Knoxville. I met a guy called Blue Copus. We were both very involved in some political activist organizations. At that time, I did not feel very popular or respected within the gay community in Knoxville. For various reasons, I was trying to do drag, and I wasn't really great at it. People just didn't know what to make of what I was trying to express. But within, like, Knoxville pride organizations and community involvement, like, there was just always, sorry, gay drama. There was just always just fighting, and I wasn't about that life. I found it really, really frustrating to deal with. And so when Blue started talking to me about this idea for a choir, I said to him, if you can get people together and we don't fight about it, then I'm in. Because Blue was very passionate and he had a great concept and an ability to bring people together. And so we started having meetings and what we found out was that like there had only been a couple of people in Knoxville or East Tennessee in general that had been willing to be in the media as out gay people because people were still afraid of like not getting work because they were out. And we had to have a lot of discussions about whether to even put the word gay in the name of the chorus 
And hmm. I fought very hard to say that's the point of this chorus right. is to tell our story. Uh, I spent a lot of my 20s feeling like I was the only person going through what I was going through. And when we started forming the Knoxville Gay Men's Chorus, we found that even though it was different variations or we might not even like each other that much for whatever reason, there was a commonality there. And we felt passionate that we needed to stand up and tell our story and let people know how we felt. And so we facilitated a lot of conversation about like, we can't get up here and ugly cry and and do this. So we like got together and cried all that out together beforehand so that we could like get on stage and then present this story to let people know more about what we were all going through. And we learned a lot about each other and the very first full concert that we did was at TVUC at the Unitarian Church with these beautiful acoustics it's such a beautiful sanctuary we did a piece by Stephen Schwartz called Testimony which he wrote as a tribute to the It Gets Better project and it was quotes from queer teens who had considered killing themselves or had actually killed themselves that he compiled into this very dramatic emotional piece And we sang this political anthem called Freedom Come, and we just begged for freedom to fill the space. We got this like whooping standing ovation to a sold out crowd. The whole sanctuary was there full of community leaders and now they're an organization like recognized by the mayor that sings at government events. It was just so healing. Coming up in just a minute, Christopher's love story with the iconic drag queen Latrice Royale from their adorable first meeting to their marriage. Wherever you're listening to the show, please do me a favor and hit subscribe, follow, plus, whatever it takes to get you into our fold. Christopher was living in Knoxville when a drag show featuring superstar Latrice Royale came to town, and that show changed his life forever. On stage, Latrice is a big, boisterous star. Offstage, he's a man named Timothy Wilcotts who grew up in Compton and spent some time in jail for a minor drug offense. Being open about his past on TV helped earn Latrice a very loyal fan base. Chris was among them and happened to be friends with the organizer of the event in Knoxville. It was December 22nd of 2000. 12. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, they had said that the Mayan calendar was ending the day before <laughs> yeah. that and that the world ended. And the next day I met Latrice yes. Royale. 
a new and day. <laughs> it's true. It was a whole new world. It really was. Um, instead of like running up, like begging for attention that way, I slide in the back way and I asked Zena, hey girl, do you need a little help with this meet and greet? And she was like, oh yes, please. Mm. And so I wound up being in charge of like taking pictures and making sure Latrice had her drinks and like managing a line or whatever and I had been to like meet and greets with like Bernadette Peters and like seeing how things you knew how it went, worked yeah. so I had some kind of idea of like what should actually be <laughs> happening and they didn't have anybody in that role yet because it was a new thing and so I introduced myself and she started flirting just like drag queens do like it's their job to flirt but she wasn't really expecting me to get mouthy back <laughs> and I've been around a lot of drag queens and I wasn't intimidated by her. I didn't know what she'd gone to jail for, but I figured if it was real, real bad or violent, we'd have hurt. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I just didn't have a feeling that this person was a threat or going to hurt me. And I don't think he was used to that. Like he's told me since then that one of the turn-ons about meeting me was that I was not intimidated or scared, as he likes to <laughs> say. So I flirted back, and it was kind of harmless at first, and then she dropped her Sharpie, mm. and she was signing autographs, and somebody had to get the Sharpie, and so <laughs> I bent over <laughs> to get the Sharpie from under the table, and you know, I made a big deal of it, just to be silly, really, like, but I had also at one point been voted best ass of any bartender in Knoxville, so just so you know, there you, go. you know, there is junk in the trunk, <laughs> there is stuff to notice back there. For all you podcast listeners. <laughs> but I wasn't necessarily, like, doing it that evocatively or whatever, but then she dropped it again on purpose, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And then she expressed some interest in hanging out after the show. But the dressing room was not very big, and I wasn't really popular, like I said. So they were like, wait, you want him to come back here? Like, they were very thrown by, like, that I would be the person that Latrice noticed out of mm. anybody in the world, particularly that club that night. Mm. After the show, Latrice told me that I would meet, could I meet her at the hotel, that she had to get packed and all of that. Well, by getting packed, she meant getting stoned with Xena in the car. <laughs> they went and smoked some weed, and I really believe that Latrice had completely forgotten about me. <laughs> and this is getting to be, you know, the club closed at three. And so this is getting to now be close to 420 time to smoke again, right? <laughs> yeah. And she's not out of drag yet. And I'm just sitting in the parking lot of this hotel waiting on Latrice Royale, feeling kind of dumb, but not wanting to ditch her. Like, you don't want to miss your chance. Like, she told me to wait here, so I'm going to wait here. Yeah. So she pulls up and sees me waiting and is completely plucked. And we go up to the hotel room and he's like trying to be a host, but is also like not fully out of drag and being a little like shy about getting in the shower with a stranger in the room. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. And I was like, I watched you on TV. I've seen you get out of drag before. I know what you have to go do. Mm. We'll talk when you're done. Mm. So then I wait for him to get out of the shower. <laughs> yeah. And then we'd sat and talked for the rest of the night. And I said very boldly that night that I didn't know what it was, but that I felt like something that I call God was between us and that I was supposed to be there. And <laughs> I said, I think I know what you're doing. I think I get it. And I've seen a lot of people that the community counted on that were in the spotlight burn out because they didn't know how to deal with it and they didn't have the right people around them. 
And I said, if, if you think I know what you're doing and you'd like to hang out, I'd love to be around for a while. But if you don't, I'll get out of the way. I'm not trying to, like, you're Latrice motherfucking Royale. Right. Like, I'm not trying to mess that up. Please, please keep doing that. Mm. And it sounds crazy now, but it was the truth. So before I made it home, Latrice was texting me. And so I knew there was a connection, but I didn't really expect to be sitting here talking to you as his husband eight years later. Like, that wasn't what I was thinking that night at all. Mm. (laughs) So I'm interested in bringing your mom back into this equation to figure out when she found out about this relationship and when she ended up meeting Timothy. At that time, I only let them know that it was a professional opportunity. Because I wasn't sure if it was going to work out with me and Tim. And my family had never met anybody that I called a boyfriend because I didn't really have anybody that I ever felt like bringing home. I needed to find out for sure, like, what it was going to be like to live with this man and to, like, see if this was going to work before I put my family through, like, getting to know somebody. Because... Like, it wasn't just, like, another Tennessee boy that they would know something about. It was a black man from Compton, California, who is 6'5", big old dude that's intimidating physically to be around, Mm. and an ex-con who's been to jail, Mm. and a world-famous drag queen. Any bit of that is hard to digest for my family, It's not just bringing the boyfriend home, it's bringing Latrice Royale home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right. But the great thing is that Latrice Royale is so beyond any box that anybody can imagine that it just removed any possible preconceived notions of who my partner should be (laughs) from my family once we did start introducing it in. My mom and Tim had not gotten an opportunity to know each other at all for the first couple of years of our relationship. You know, I think that I was starting to let them know more about, like, what was really going on during this time. But when he proposed to me on stage in Seattle, Washington, it was quite the to-do and an event. And it got a lot of social media traction immediately because Jujubee was live on Facebook. Okay, just a quick interjection here. Jujubee is a drag queen. Maybe that was obvious. And she was streaming this live on her Facebook page. It would you be the greatest honor to have you be my life partner? And I know we said we don't give a fuck about traditional marriage and we don't care about the government being in our business, but bitch, I've had a change of heart. And so the news actually made it to my mom via social media Mm. first. Our phones were blowing up from notifications from all over the world, congratulating us on our engagement and being happy for us and celebrating that, and crickets from Tennessee. Like, I heard from cousins and other people, and that's how I found out that she knew. But in the middle of the night, I wasn't going to call her and wake her up and tell her something that she might not want to (laughs) know in the first place. And she was very hurt by that and felt left out of it. Later on, Christmas passed, and my mom had uh, sent me a gift, but everybody else had sent us a gift. And when I saw only my name on the package and every other Christmas card or every other thing that we got was to Chris and Tim or Latrice and Chris or whoever they thought we were, it really like let me know that this is like no longer acceptable and I've got to figure out how we're going to do this, which meant that I had to make sure that my 
fiance was willing and able to have a relationship with my blood family. There are assumptions that he had about where I come from and who they may be that he had to work at putting aside to be open to having a relationship with them. And because he knew that our relationship was a challenge, that didn't encourage him to want to engage. But he also didn't want us to go the rest of our lives without feeling like a complete family. Because I was seeing a lot of healing in his own family. I got to see him have totally full circle moments with his brothers that he hadn't spoken to in years that now call each other on the regular. And so I was being shown this example of healing and being challenged, I felt like, to enact it in my own family and live up to the example that I felt like my partner was exhibiting for me. I finally set a, set a time. I'd like let my mom know that like we need to talk, and I, we set aside some time. And basically, like my mom expressed to me that day that she felt that if this was something that I was proud of, that I would have called her and included her. And I felt that if she had been proud of me and ready to celebrate with me, that she would have called me because I knew that she had known. And it just left us in this like silence for a while of like she didn't think I wanted her uh, to be a part of it because of the way that things went down and that wasn't the case at all but at the end of the day I do know that she was taught and has practiced that you know homosexuality is a sin and I wasn't really sure that if she would be uh, willing and able to you know, be a part of our world as it exists. That day, though, she really made a choice that she would rather have her son in her life than not. Hmm. Like, that's just what it came down to. And before my grandmother passed away, Tim and I scheduled a weekend where we went to Tennessee, and he got to meet the whole family as Tim. They had never seen RuPaul's Drag Race or any of Latrice's anything So he won them over, and he got the chance to meet my grandmother, Hazel, before she passed, and my great-uncle, Ray. And, you know, Tim wears a lot of, um, like, beanie-knitted hats. After my great-uncle had met him, they said, well, what did you think of Chris's friend? And he said, well, I mean, he's all right, I guess, but I don't know why he had that toboggan on in the middle of the summer. (laughs) (laughs) What did your grandma think of him? My grandmother thought that I was happy and taken care of and not calling her Mm. in tears in the middle of night anymore. That's what she knew. She knew that this man really did want to take care of me. And he was there, the one holding me when they called me, telling me that she had passed. Mm. So I think that she knew somewhere, like, despite everything that she was taught that she saw that that we had to do what we had, that this was how it had to be. Yeah. It feels like my grandmother somehow, like, was able to, like, work through us almost more when she passed away than she was when she w- was alive. Because my mom, like, once she heard Tim's story of losing his own mother while he was incarcerated... Because now she has that experience of having lost her mother, she has a way to connect with him. And she just mm-hmm. couldn't imagine like grieving in isolation and going through what he went through. And she had a sympathy for him and a way to relate to him that I don't think she could have had before that experience. So she has completely embraced him and went from like not even like 
really wanting to know about our wedding to being the only person of my blood family that did stand with me at our wedding. And it was the first time that people from very different facets of our lives got to be in the same room together. It was a level playing field where none of the girls were in drag. And so everybody was like really relatable and got to know each other for real. We hired some of the best musicians in the world to come and sing and uh, play for us because you're not just going to put on no CD mm. or MP3 player mm. at my wedding. <laughs> I'm going to need to have some live music Yep, and I'm going to f- need to feel it. People found Jesus that day that did not know they needed him. Mm. Lily McLeod came. She sang a, a CC Wine and song called Alabaster Box mm. that talks about you don't know the cost of the oil of my praise of like uh, you you don't know what I went through to still maintain my idea of God standing here before you. And the whole place went up like everybody was just. <laughs> and Don Tallman sang Through the Fire by Shaka Khan to walk us down the aisle. Even though I was sort of saddened that more of my blood family did not choose to participate in the event, seeing Tim's blood family walking down the aisle and being so proud of him and embracing me and finding out that the country and the Compton aren't that different. Like the holler is just the hood without no concrete. And everybody had stories to tell and they got along so famously. My stepfather was a little confused. Like he definitely like on low key would come to me and be like, so is she a, a, who is she a, like he definitely had a lot of gender questions (laughs) that I answered as appropriately as I could while educating him about but I was just really glad he didn't go up to them and like ask any stupid <laughs> question. You know, he came to me. But it was a wild uh, educational experience for them. My mom absolutely fell in love with drag legend Tommy Ross, who's a transgendered woman legend in the industry. And like, my mom is like all up on her Facebook all the time now. Like, uh, it's not predictable to me, but it just goes to show that like. We are all one. We, this, we are a family. We are a community. And I am so, so grateful to my mother for making the choice to um, show up. You know, I, I let her know, like, this is happening in front of the world. And there is a, a whole world of people ready to embrace you as, like, a part of something meaningful you know i've always said that there is a point to everything that we've gone through there must be a reason we went through everything that we went through and mom this is it we get to be an example of something in a way christopher's life as a part of the drag community is a ministry Helping produce Latrice's one woman show which is full of stories of hope and redemption does help people feel less alone It's true. I do consider my work a ministry still, especially um, my work with Latrice on Here's to Life, her one-woman show. Um, I have seen uh, the healing properties of of Latrice telling that story. Um, When people hear what my husband has been through, for real, for real, especially a lot of my white brothers that think that they've been through something, Uh, find out that they really haven't had the struggles that they thought that they had. And um, 
And the great thing is that that Latrice can do that show and you know already that she's a success story. So you know it has a happy ending. <laughs> so people can be very vulnerable in a space with her and, and cry it out with Latrice because she's mama and, and she has that Mother Earth energy um, that is what you want from a preacher or a spiritual guide. And, and, and I know that I feel less ashamed of myself of who I am and what I have offered the world because of my relationship with my husband. And I think that our work together in the world has eased a lot of people's burdens for how they were treated by, by the world. Yeah. Last question. How do you define family today? Well, I define family uh, as a choice at this point. I had to sort of step away from my father and his side of the family. That was not healthy for me. And other members of other parts of my family have had to step away from me because that is apparently what they feel is best for themselves and their children. Um, I'm very, very, very lucky to have been able to travel and find... Uh, a lot of other people like myself. Uh, wherever Latrice and I have gone, we've kind of accidentally picked up the misfits of that city. <laughs> and they feel heard by us and understood by us. And I feel heard and understood by them, uh, which isn't something I feel a lot of times. And I guess that's how I define family. If I need you for real, for real, and you're not there then you're probably not my family for real, for real. Mm. And sometimes, you know, family is coming through and showing that, no, I mean this. Mm. I love you and I want you to be okay. And that's who we fight for. Family is who we fight for. I'm just so endlessly grateful to you two for just everything you are in the world and cannot (laughs) wait to see you in person one day, hopefully when this crap is over. Thank you. When this crap is over, we have a guest room with y'all's name on it. It's a big king bed, and I think all three of you can squeeze in there and cuddle (laughs) up real nice. I love Chris Hamblin. His energy, his enthusiasm, his authenticity. He's a delightful human being. And... His life is a great reminder that activism can come in so many shapes. It can mean starting a choir, building a community, marrying the man you love. Building a life with the people you love isn't always easy, is it? It takes work. It takes patience. It takes compassion. But Chris's story shows us that the work is worth it and that it is possible to blend your family of origin with the one you create for yourself as an adult. Maybe not always, of course, but I think it's worth a shot. Thank you so much, Christopher, for joining us on This Is My Family. I want you all to go and download his new song, Give Me a Holler. We've linked to it in the show notes. Fair warning, it is super catchy and awesome. I'd also love for you to check out All the Queen's Men, which you can find on WOW Presents Plus. I just got my subscription yesterday, and I cannot wait to binge. 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TIMF Show or our website, which is TIMFshow.com. This podcast is a production of thestoryproducer.com and it's made by me, Katie Clarkson, Trisha Bobita, Jackie Ball, and B. Bosco. It is edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe and our music is by Andrew Edwards. Social Current takes care of our social media and show administration. You can find them at Social Current. That's Social C-U-R-R-A-N-T. And last but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Ziwu Jo. If you like this show, please help spread the word. Will you do us a favor? Give us five stars and a thoughtful Apple review. Very specific request. Shouldn't take you more than 60 seconds. Help us out, please. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Tyler Green. And until next time, stay beautiful and messy. Is the podcast all done, Sam?